Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York courts. I'm John Carr. In commemoration of a 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, a momentous change in U.S. law, today's Diversity Dialogue segment focuses on Dave Whalen, Assistant Deputy Counsel in the Office of Justice Court Support. In 1981, Dave was a typical 19-year-old when a skiing accident left him quadriplegic. He maneuvered his electronic wheelchair through college and law school. He's practiced law, and for nearly 30 years, he's worked for the New York State Unified Court System. He's also worked as a judicial law clerk at the Appellate Division 3rd Department, the second highest court in the state. Dave said he's always had the support of the court system, from the very top, with Chief Judges Kay and Littman, with Deputy Chief Administrative Judges Trevacani and Kakoma, with Presiding Justice Cardona of the 3rd Department and Justice Spain, and so many others at every level who helped him along the way. In his free time, Dave is a competitive sailor who uses a sip-and-puff technology to steer the sailboat hands-free and set the sails. He sits in an automobile drag racing seat that has straps and extra metal for reinforcement when the boat heels on windy days so he can stay upright. A music lover, for 30 years he wanted to play guitar or some type of music, but he couldn't. So, he helped invent a hands-free instrument which children and adults with disabilities across the United States using school music programs as well as regular and jazz bands. Dave, welcome to the program. Okay, so, so you're 19 years old. You've just learned that you're paralyzed from the neck down and you're never going to walk again. Where do you find the strength to not only make the best of this situation, but in the first days even even wake up the next day? Well, I think that the strength is derived from family and friends and uh, uh, resources and being, uh, you know, I think initially, certainly from family and friends that really pull you through. With a spinal cord injury is you don't really know exactly the level of progress that you will potentially make physically. And uh, sometimes years after an injury, you can uh, regain some function. So uh, at, at that time, I really didn't understand the full enormity of what would lie ahead. So 30, 30, 40 years later now, I'm you know, certainly amazed at a lot of the uh, progress and things that have happened. But the thing about a spinal cord injury is you see an individual and you think that the not being able to walk part is like the most significant part. But really, with a spinal cord injury, it affects your central nervous system in many different ways from uh, sensory issues temperature issues, blood pressure issues, pulmonary issues, breathing, and, um, you know, just all kinds of different ways. So uh, not being able to walk is one issue, but it really is more enormous. And with a quadriplegia, you know, you're not able to use your hands, so that can um, affect many tasks of daily living. So it's a, it really is, um, you know, it is a challenge. It must have been enormously difficult and depressing, though, as, as time went on and you were not improving. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I had the pleasure of being uh, in, involved with uh, a state trooper, a friend of mine, Paul Rector, who started a spinal cord injury research board with New York State, and Christopher Reeve uh, was on, and I was able to be on that for eight years. And so 
although I wasn't personally um, uh, making leaps and bounds with, with uh, uh, from a physical recovery, technology was changing and opportunities for education in New York and uh, different things were available constantly. So uh, not, I wouldn't recommend anyone to have a spinal injury, but looking back and, and going forward as well, uh, you know, it's incredible the amount of resources and things that have been available and to be able to go to law school and uh, to be able to be employed with the court system for you know, almost 30 years has been an incredible uh, you know, blessing and really an interesting and a really neat experience. Uh, just, I was looking at the, the statistics, and since 2010, I've worked on about over 40,000 uh, calls and cases. Good Lord. And it's just every day in New York State, there are so many cases going on and so many things happening. And uh, so being able to, you know, have a, a career and be able to be employed and work on different things has been, uh, you know, you know, tremendous. Spinal injury or no spinal injury. I suppose in a, in a prior era, a prior generation, none of that would have been possible. Well, certainly there's been a lot of great technology with uh, speech recognition. Let's uh, let's, back, let's back let's back up a second if we could. Let's um, um, first of all, law school is that something you're planning to do before the injury? Is that so? You just do you just continue on with your plans, or is that something that came up later? Well, it. I had been really fascinated by, you know, different individuals with law backgrounds. One of them was Mario Cuomo because he was the governor uh, at the time. And I was listening to a lot of public radio and would uh, listen to a lot of his discussions, other attorneys that were bringing up all kinds of legal issues that were really, you know, seemed to me to be really pretty fascinating. So I didn't really early on expect to be uh, going to law school, but, you know, a lot of resources and great things available in the state, and so I was able to go to uh, State University of New York at Buffalo Law School, and hmm. I that was a good bargain. So Mario Cuomo uh, was uh, an inspiration in a way. He's interesting because he would break down so many aspects and uh, field so many questions a lot of times, whether it was, you know, whether it was energy or issues with uh, equality and, you know, racism and just a bunch of issues to, uh, that he was always tackling and always found to be incredibly interesting. Yeah, he was a, a real legal scholar and, and, you know, I had heard him say more than once that the uh, best job he ever had was a clerk at the Court of Appeals and, of course, people speculated forever that he was a governor who would really have rather been chief judge. Now, um, when you were when you started law school, did you have an idea of what kind of law you were going to practice? Criminal cases are really what I work on mostly now. Now and they're 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 stories. There are you know there's a real context to everything. Criminal law has always been kept kept my interest up and really been you know something I've really enjoyed. Did you intend to at that point to become a, a prosecutor or defense attorney, or had you broken it down to that extent? Well, initially I worked in the. Uh, uh, you know, privately, and was working on criminal cases, and I was doing criminal defense. One of the first experiences with a court was a rural court where I needed to go make a argue a motion, and there were stairs to get in. And so 
the workaround was that they were going, the court system was going to, they asked the town emergency squad to help me with a stretcher to get up like five steps into the courtroom. But as a quadriplegic, I had a huge electric wheelchair and still pretty heavy. And really, that was not really a practical way to kind of get in and out of courts uh, all over the place that really had some, you know, physical issue barriers. So there was a jury pool waiting on the courthouse steps, and then the uh, emergency um, squad arrived at the court, and I am, they want to put me on a stretcher. And then people were like looking at me thinking, was he having a heart attack? Was he emergency, you know, was he the emergency? And so uh, I can even remember too that uh, an individual that was in the jury pool, uh, I don't know, for some reason walked up and gave me a $5 bill. Really? (laughs) And yeah, and I was, I was just blown away by uh, the whole experience, and so I, ultimately, I ended up work switching and going into with the court system, uh, where the traveling so much as not was not an issue. So, but yeah, the logistics of private practice at that time. Now, now the courts have really you know have really improved, and there's been constant improvement in access to courts and things. But that's actually how my first. One of my first experiences was. Now, when you were initially injured, that was, oh, I don't know, 10 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I think you were well into or almost done with law school before it was passed. So is this month marks the 30th anniversary of the ADA. Can you tell me from personal experience what that piece of legislation means to you? It's utterly fantastic. Uh, made a life, uh, made my life better in many different ways, but uh, just to go to a movie theater or sporting event or a venue and to be able to be included and have access in the seating aspects of it is fantastic. I mean, and breaking down barriers, I mean, I think in our, uh, with the court system and in other uh, organizations that have uh, made opportunities available for people with high levels of disability, it's a it's a, a great thing in, in many respects, and I think that uh, um, the, the ADA has been a really super helpful thing for a lot of people, and uh, you know, a, a great, you know, a great, a great advance. You know, part of it is probably a willingness to accommodate, and part of it is probably a knowing how to accommodate. Later, when I started to work. With the court system, I worked at the appellate division, which is third department in Albany, and they're located at the Justice Building, which is like right across from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't had someone in my situation, and I needed voice to use a, I used a voice recognition. When I was in law school, the, you know, the computers and in college, they didn't really have as much technology then. And um, so a lot of it was I would write with a pen in my mouth. And then, then later, the, I would use a, uh, um, you know, computers and technology and speech recognition. But so when I first started there at the appellate division, 
in a law clerk role, which is like a temporary role, uh, where uh, I was able to use Judge Spain's chambers. He let me use them. So I think that was like one of the, uh, a huge accommodation. It's such a great thing from Judge Spain. Mm -hmm. And so that was the corner office of the Justice Building on the third floor. It was like one of the neatest uh, places to have an office anywhere and early on in my career and then to be able to uh, have that and then the voice recognition I could certainly talk as loud as I wanted to um, when I was working on cases, on appeals cases and uh, so that was that was like incredible gesture on Judge Bain's part and um, you know and that, there was other you know really neat accommodations along the way to make things possible, make things work. Um, so Judge Spain, of course, is Justice Edward Spain, and I'm guessing at the time the presiding justice was Justice Cardona? Yes, Justice Cardona was uh, also incredibly uh, you know, helpful and actually helped me, uh, you know, and able to get my spot with the Office of Justice Court Support. So, yeah, another really very bright uh, individual, a very kind individual and um, very helpful to me. This, I just wanted to say thank you to people for, uh, you know, there's a lot of talented people, the hardworking people in the court system, they never get acknowledged. And I wish that, you know, I would want to say to them, and I work with, uh, you know, people in my office are really hardworking, bright people that don't get a lot of acknowledgement. And, you know, saying thank you to them is always a really good thing. But, um, and then uh, the appellate division, they're really amazing. And the Court of Appeals judges, two judges, Judge Bellicosa and uh, Judge Kay are, are awesome. So it sounds, like, it sounds like everyone from the chief judge on, on down is invested in, in accommodating people like you and making, in giving them an opportunity for success. Is that, do you think that's correct? No doubt about it. That's, that's great to hear. Now, the uh, Office of Justice Court Support, um, what is it that you do there? So we work with, and I'm going to switch, uh, I went yesterday to research the, uh, some information we have currently, 1,806 judges, 1,196 town and village courts, 1,785 court clerks. Um, and then we also work with the uh, city courts. We provide a range of different kinds of services that have really evolved, but um, education and training for judges. Um, and then what I do, which is a lot of uh, research and sort of like a every day, uh, all of these courts have issues and trials going on and different kinds of cases that are pending motions. And so we get calls and then we work with the judges uh, individually on various types of cases, but and mostly criminal, but they could be uh, summary proceedings, they could be ethical issues, they could be administrative issues, and uh, all kinds of logistics, uh, uh, interpreters, and access to documents. Many times uh, there'll be a famous you know, case, might be like on CNN or something, and we'll get a call from those courts uh, with press, you know, working with the press and uh, working with uh, which types types of documents can be uh, disseminated, what what can be 
go out with this public and um, what cannot. Mm -hmm. Just by way of uh, uh, background, of course, I mean, the town and justice courts are kind of the entry level, and as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of them. A great many of them are part-time. A great many of the judges are not lawyers, and uh, they handle, I don't know how many cases, but uh, an enormous number. And I, I think for a whole lot of people, that is their only first and only experience with the justice system, correct? Yeah, it's true. You know, there are... I mean, the state geographically is, you know, got uh, so many, uh, you know, from the Adirondacks and, you know, out in Long Island, different areas geographically. But municipalities host and have the, uh, you know, justice courts. And our judges are calling us and, you know, striving to uh, correct. Yeah, they do try awfully, awfully hard. And, and I know that uh, your office provides a lot of support. As, as I mentioned, many of them are part-time, many of them are not attorneys, and uh, I, I know your office provides very, very welcome support and assistance to so these people can administer justice. Three people in our office are, are judges, uh, local judges, and uh, Nancy Smekshin, who runs the Office of Justice Support, Court Support, is Waterford Town Judge, and then Sand Lake Town Judge David Fryer. And, and then um, Diane Toro is in Milton. And then we also have uh, Jeremy Zelliger and uh, Alex, Alex Glick Kushner in our office. And all of them have an enormous amount of experience. And, you know, you know, it's an enormous pleasure to be able to work with them. They just function at the highest level, super dedicated and, you know, really very bright. Now, obviously, you have an experience that most people do not. Do you think your background, your experience, your unique perspective adds something to the Talented Village Court Resource Center? You know, I certainly feel that uh, a perspective of being disabled and, and using uh, electric wheelchair and having certain kinds of issues, you certainly um, see the world from, different, from a different perspective sometimes, and you want to be constantly challenging yourself toward any kind of bias and making sure that um, you know people just get what they deserve it's incredibly special to be able to work with having the public trust and to be able to have you know be able to be employed and work on behalf of the public to try to make sure that they are treated fairly and that and justly and um, you know we're reminded by uh, one of our uh, Judge Judge Kakoma, who is the um, is going to be retiring, but is the uh, chief administrative deputy administrative judge for all judges outside of New York City. He'll just constantly remind us that we don't own the particular jobs that we have. We are serving temporarily, however, whatever duration it is, and re reaffirming how important it is to just not have any bias and just do your work and and uh, do it diligently and, and appreciate the fact that you have able to serve the public in, in a special way, you know, trying to strive for a more just system. Oh, when, when did you join, you join the court system again? Uh, roughly around 1995-ish. And in those years, how, how was the court system accommodated your needs? In many, many different ways, uh, allowing for um, different work schedules and um, telecommuting, uh, when it's needed, and 
you know, open lines of communication and, uh, you know, being proactive many times in terms of, you know, if any technology is needed or, you know, adjusting work schedules. With the court system, I work personally uh, Monday evenings, according uh, night court, and then during the week I work nine to five, but, and then on uh, about a weekend a month, we, we split up a pager where we uh, all um, assist judges, you know, for off hour issues, which could be something like an arraignment or if a, a fugitive is apprehended, needs to be arraigned or um, there's a night court going on or something of that nature. So is it, is it fair to say that you're carrying a full load and that the court system does what it can to make it possible for you to carry that full load? I would say that the court system has been always striving to do really well for, from my perspective from people from with disabilities. That's good to hear. Now, back back to the ADA, and since this is the uh, anniversary, if you could tweet it or rewrite it or change it, what would you do? How does it need to be improved? What have we learned in these 30 years? You, you hope that a public entity doesn't need the threat of litigation to make a more inclusive, make program or a facility more inclusive. That being said, uh, you know, I... Uh, it's tough because what happens is architecturally in instances investments are made and it's very difficult to make a change and for example if you look at any university uh, basketball arena most of them are like stadium seating and so if you're in a wheelchair you're either down near the floor which is going to be very expensive or up the rails beyond the uh, you know, beyond the stadium seating you know, up, up at the rails at the top and so there's nothing in the middle and movie theaters if you look if you want to see a tremendously inclusive architectural you know public accommodation we have um, the uh, Valley Cats locally in the, in the Albany area but they have seating that you can just use a wheelchair and be uh, dozens of different locations and many movie theaters now have um you know, new seating schemes that uh, stadiums can't really correct sometimes because they've already, they were built before the ADA. Mm-hmm. Oh, with, uh, Valley Catch, like, you're, legacy architecture. Yeah. Uh, with Valley Catch, you're, you're referring to the minor league uh, baseball team in Troy, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, wonderful architecture, wonderful inclusion, you know, and huge numbers of seats uh, that are available, you know, free at, you know, throughout the season. But going forward, having the AD in place is going to be really nice for people in many, in many ways. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, is I'd remind the listeners that, you know, people are, we all grow old. We all have issues with our health. And so, you know, you might not think of it in, at your early stage in your life that this would be an important issue, but uh, these kinds of things are really can really turn out to be helpful for everyone. Yeah, I, know, I know you have an interest in criminal law. I also know that you have unfortunate experience as a crime victim. In 2018, you were victimized by your caretaker's cousin as part of a scheme to exploit disabled and elderly victims. A couple things jump out at me uh, Jump out at me uh, from that incident, from the media coverage I was able to find on that. One, the Schenectady County District Attorney, Bob Carney, said that the thieves were, quote, no match for you. Two, you were quoted as saying the conviction, that you viewed the conviction more of as a tragedy than a victory. So how did all this come to light? What did you do about it? And where's the tragedy? 
the case uh, ended up getting media coverage uh, from all over the United States. It really put me in touch with the criminal justice system. And for everyone that gets, uh, that's a subject of, or a victim of a crime, uh, in order to pursue justice, it's, it's a huge effort because you need to uh, meet with the police and try to track down uh, evidence and then uh, work with an assistant district attorney. In my case, it was Dan Bolter, who um, was incredible, incredibly uh, dedicated and worked incredibly hard. And so did uh, Bob Carney, the DA, and uh, he worked at it diligently as well. Ultimately, there was a conviction. But the, um, uh, so, you know, appearing before a grand jury, uh, which I did, um, and getting questions from the grand jurors, questioning me, my veracity, questioning me uh, about uh, whether or not the, uh, how, how the scheme unfolded. You know, if you're really, if you're a, a victim and you're tied to it, I mean, it's really uh, a lot of pain uh, in terms of feeling vulnerable and uh, um, the financial loss, which was recouped in my case, but it wasn't certain that it was going to be. And, uh, you know, if you work your you know, years put away at money for your retirement and to have it uh, stolen, it's enormous, enormous uh, feeling of loss. And, uh, Must have felt like a, a terrible violation. I mean, this was, I mean, I guess, I guess it's one thing to have your house burglarized by a stranger. And this is this is someone you invited into your house, someone who was a, a caretaker, someone you thought you could trust. That must have been a terrible violation. Uh, yeah, individual, uh, you know, was con- convicted and received twelve and a half to twenty years um, in jail. I took no pleasure in, in uh, you know having a fellow human being have to go to jail. But uh, my issue was I did want to try to protect other individuals with disabilities from being preyed upon. That the individual that was involved in my case will um, learn from it and that they will rehabilitate themselves and flourish in life you know, eventually. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, you are, among other things, a sailor. Tell me about that. Tell me about adaptive sailing. What does that entail? Yeah, ironically, you wouldn't think um, I'd want to be anywhere near water if I'm not able to swim. However, I do have a really highly rated life preserver. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And um, technology has changed. So I've been able to sail. Uh, we've been able to adapt the sailboat to be able to turn it uh, by blowing into a straw, sipping and puffing, and to be able to uh, put a drag racing seat, an automobile, a metal one, to be able to uh, lean and, and have the boat heel. We have a bunch of boats, different types, but this the one I'm talking about is called a sonar sailboat. So. Uh, special seating system, special steering system, and a, way, a, a lift to get in and out of the boat. So I'm able to uh, sail, really, and race sailboats and learn about sailing. Sailing is an incredibly adaptive sport, a very accessible sport. And uh, Well, you went to sailing before you got hurt, or is that something you picked up entirely afterward? Uh, definitely an after, after the injury um, uh, endeavor. That's, that's that's fantastic. And you compete as well, right? Yeah, I mean, ironically, um, sailing is very accessible. 
and there's a lot of new programs that are available for people to participate. And uh, one of the really top-selling programs is the Claggett uh, Regatta in, in uh, Rhode Island. And uh, they, Regatta, they promote uh, opportunities for people to learn about and, you know, do, do sailing. And actually, each Saturday, I do online lessons on racing sailboats uh, over the summer for the uh, last eight weeks. And the, ironically, you wouldn't have it in any other sport, but um, Dave Dellenbaugh and Dave Perry are like Olympic coaches for the United States Olympics and have won, one of them won the America's Cup with the helmsman, and the other one is like a multi-world champion with match racing, and I think was going to be in the Olympics. But um, they volunteer, or they help with people with uh, disabilities to uh learn about sailing. Now in your free time, I believe you also invented a musical instrument? Yeah, that's uh, been my real, one of my passions is uh, music. I try to uh, uh, work on that a little bit during the, uh, you know, as a hobby. So, but uh, yeah, the, uh, we've worked on with a large number of other people uh, making a hands-free musical instrument. Uh, it's called Jambox, J-A-M-B-O-X-X. I, for 30 years, I couldn't play music, and I was not getting any younger. I just really wanted to play electric guitar or a piano or something, to not just listen, but to actually participate in some way, but uh, that was not happening. So I decided, you know, reached out to a bunch of people and started working on a project that I just kind of made with, and working on elect building electronics and uh, uh, working on... Uh, Music. So we, we started building them. They're, we're located at Albany Medical Center, our office, and we do uh, music and then respiratory research. But uh, we've got the units out all over the all over the globe, and then to many different uh, high school, uh, school sky schools across the United States, uh, where the kids can use the uh, uh, kids with disabilities use it. So what what, what is this instrument? Yeah. It, it, I guess it has to be a wind instrument, right? So my idea was that, the, my thought was that electronically to make something you could breathe in like a harmonica, mm -hmm. and then uh, it's uh, it also controls software so you can change instrument sounds, scales, and uh, strategies for playing. So you can um, tap into different notes through software and trigger all kinds of different sounds. Well, you must be uh, pretty good at it. A couple of years ago, you played the national anthem at a... Albany sporting event for about 12,000 people and the crowd went wild. What, what was that like? That was that was an incredible experience. We are trying to promote adaptive music. The, the idea was proposed to me and I was didn't really think about it too much and I said yes. And it, was, it was quite an experience to be honest with you. I never really was not not a musician really, a major musician in any way. I, it's more of a hobby and something I you know, wanted to do but a portion of the anthem uh, was picked up on Facebook and then had like a huge, huge number of hits, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands within a day. And uh, so we got feedback from Portugal and other uh, Spain and just all the different, a lot of countries uh, uh, all over the world. On that note, and since we are celebrating the 4th of July, I think we'll end the program and thank you, Dave, by uh, playing your rendition of the National Anthem. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the Court Systems website at www.nycourts.gov, and you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.